Hey there, welcome back to Holding Space Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Cassidy Freitas. I have a very special place in my heart for kids who might struggle with sensory processing challenges or find themselves being really sensory sensitive. I also have a special place in my heart for parents raising these kiddos and for adults who they themselves might experience sensory overload. The reason that this holds such a special place in my heart is because my two oldest have themselves been diagnosed with sensory processing disorder. And my partner, when we learned about this for our kids, really resonated with these symptoms and with the experience. And so he's not quite sure, but we think this might be something that he struggles with as well. Now, being a parent to a child who has sensory processing challenges can be hard. And so I I decided to invite Laura, otherwise known as the OT Butterfly, she's a pediatric occupational therapist, onto the podcast to do a couple things, to demystify what occupational therapy is and how it can support these kids and adults as well, and to talk about some of the challenges that come with behaviors connected to sensory processing challenges and sensory sensitivity, what we can do as parents to support our kids and to support ourselves. I'm so excited that you tuned in to this episode. If you did, I'm guessing that maybe you might be wondering if your child has sensory processing challenges, or you might be curious to take a step to get support and what that might look like. And I'm just so glad that you're here. All right. Are you ready? Let's dive in. listening to Holding Space Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Cassidy Freitas. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, mom to three, and I support mamas just like you who want a supported, loving, and rested postpartum so that you can flourish in that first year with baby. In this podcast, I'm sharing my conversations with perinatal experts from around the world and with parents who've been through it. While I hope that this podcast is supportive to you, it is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed health provider. I'm so glad you're here. Let's dive in. Hello, Laura. Thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation with me today and record a podcast episode. I'm so excited, and I know that you know, it took, it took a lot for both of us to <laughs> carve out the time and space. And, um, my husband, my husband has the baby and you were sharing that you just had some parenting stuff happening. And so, you know, it's, it took a lot, but here we are, we're here. Connecting. I'm so excited that we were able to make this happen. The stars aligned with nap times, with meltdowns, with husbands taking over, we made it work and I'm excited to be here. <laughs> Well, before we dive in, can you share with us and the listeners a little bit about you and your background and what you're passionate about and what drove you to do the work that you do? Sure. So I am a pediatric occupational therapist and I work with children ages three to 12 um, with anything that has to do with sensory processing challenges, with fine motor challenges, gross motor or cognitive challenges. And all of my professional experience is in a clinic, a sensory integration clinic. Um, But I also have experience at home with my own daughter who is, she'll be four in July and she has sensory processing disorder as well. So I've got both my clinician hat and my mom hat going on overdrive 24 seven. So I have that piece. I think that makes me a little bit extra passionate for educating and connecting with parents about this. I think once I realized that my daughter has her own sensory challenges that kind of shifted my my true passion in working directly with children which I still love but now really really finding that connection and letting parents feel validated and feel seen and heard in this journey of raising kids with sensory processing disorder because if there's one word to describe it the what the first word that always comes to mind is is isolating because Mm. it's not quite totally understood yet. It's not accepted in some professions. We're still having to really, really, quote, prove 
the the implications of this in daily life and just walking that as a parent is just it's isolating. So that kind of drives into my passion for what I do now. While I'm sort of in between clinics, I still practice occupational therapy uh, as a parent coach. And so I talk to a lot of parents and teach them about ways that they can support their sensory sensitive child at home and also offer the support group of others so that we can, so that they can really see that they're not alone. Mm, Well, I am so excited to be chatting with you today. This is also something that I am uh, more newly passionate about as uh, both of my children uh, were diagnosed with sensory processing disorder um, in the last um, couple of years. Um, and it was a really interesting experience because we were initially, um, the teacher sort of picked up on stuff with our son while he was in preschool, some of his fine motor skills and um, encouraged us to get an assessment with an occupational therapist. Um, And there were other things that they noticed as well. Like whenever he'd walk into the classroom, there was this one chair, he would sit in that chair and it just took him a while to kind of take in everything before he would become ready to, um, you know, really integrate into the classroom. And so we went and got an assessment first for him And when we sat down with the occupational therapist and she went over the assessment with us, um, two things happened. One, uh, we both, my partner and I found ourselves thinking about our daughter who's older than him, um, but also struggled with some of the things that they were kind of identifying could be supported through occupational therapy. And my husband, I waited for him. I didn't want to say it, but I waited for him. He turned to me and he was like, this is me. And I'm like, <laughs> oh my God, <laughs> yes, I know. This is you. Um, and, you know, he was, as a child, he was diagnosed with ADHD. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, maybe, but and like, because there's definitely concentration stuff there for him. But like, he really, really connected with and aligned with the challenges that were described with sensory processing disorder. And mm-hmm. uh, I don't know if people really understood that when he, when we were kids. Um, and so it, you know, it maybe fit more in the, under the quote unquote umbrella box of ADHD um, for at the time, right. It's how they best understood it. But, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, I mean, it opened our eyes to a couple of things. I feel, I felt like, well, I, sh- let me say at first I was, nervous and scared. Um, and there was guilt, like, did we do something wrong? Mm -hmm. Like, did we, um, and then scared, um, are people going to treat our children differently because Mm -hmm. labels, um, can have a lot of power. And I personally find that like, it's really hard to fit anyone into a box. And so a label feels like a box to me sometimes. And Mm -hmm. I know that they can be powerful. People can respond to you differently if, if, if uh, a label is sort of put on you. Right. And so I was nervous about that. Um, but also felt like I got, I got to know the inner experience of my child, children and my husband (laughs) so much more deeply and understood things that before had just felt I mean, for my, for my husband, probably more like frustrating, right. <laughs> um, like, why are you wearing head canceling headphones? Like why? Like, I'm not, I'm not canceling out our family, you know, like, <laughs> um, and, um, and, and just noticing how he struggled in big social situations and with communication. Um, and, and also, and but then also just understanding my children's behaviors and like, a lot, just so much more. Mm-hmm. Um, and then being able to share with their teachers, like in the future, like this is something that, that my kids experience, right? How, how they are experiencing the world around them and now their teachers are better able to support them and other people who are in their life. Right. So it was both and right. It was both, I was scared. I was anxious. I felt guilty. I was worried about the future mm-hmm. for them. And also just so grateful to understand them more intimately. And so my questions to you um, for the listeners, uh, there's two, two big ones here is I think first um, for people to maybe understand what sensory processing sensitivity or sensory processing disorder is, and then what 
is occupational therapy, right? Like is there's a lot more that someone could go get assessed for under with an OT for besides just sensory sensitivity. And so I just want to give people kind of a window into the, the field as well as this um, experience in specifically. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, of course. So I think it would be best if I first talked about what occupational therapy is and how it can help. And then we'll, we'll transition into what sensory processing disorder looks like and what it is. So the term occupational in occupational therapy is I think what gives people the most misconception about our field. They think we find people jobs, but really the, the essence of occupational therapy refers to things that occupy our time. So essentially we help people across the lifespan from newborns all the way up to older adults. We help them engage and participate in things that occupy their time that are meaningful and purposeful to their daily lives. So for kids, what are those things? That's play, that's participating in school, learning from their teacher, making friends, keeping friends, and lots of other things in the house, feeding, taking baths, getting dressed, all of those things that take up a child's day. And so pediatric OT usually focuses on interventions that help the child become as independent as possible in those environments and contexts. And they can use so many different methods depending on what specifically they're working on. I would like to also put here that occupational therapists can work with children who are gaining new skills. So if, if children are more developmentally delayed and they don't have a certain skill, an occupational therapist can help modify tasks or help uh, adapt tasks and give kids the tools to become more independent and to learn a skill, or they can help a child regain a skill. So if it's, if they had an illness or injury, then they can help them do things differently so they can still be independent. But the goal is always to be independent and functional in your daily life. So that means then when a child is, quote, dysfunctional or having a hard time participating in an environment, so let's take the classroom, because they have challenges with sensory processing, then the OT helps the child integrate some of their senses so it's more uh, functional, it's more efficient so that the child can more easily participate in that environment. So mm. for sensory processing disorder, we have to understand that everybody at all times is processing sensory information. So right now, if you're a listener, where whether you're listening in the car or you're doing dishes at the same time, you are taking in sights of the dishes. Or if you're driving, you're taking the sights of the road. You're listening to our voice talk. You're listening maybe to background noise. You have the feel of whatever your chair is under your body. You might feel some wind. Um, on your arm if you're driving in the car and your window's down. There's lots of these different senses that our brain is taking in from the world. And our brain automatically processes that and tells us what, what we need to do with it. Most of the time, a lot of the things can be, quote, ignored. I don't need to pay attention to that sound over there. I don't need to pay attention to that feeling. I do need to tune into the sound of Laura's voice because I'm listening to something that's interesting to me and I want to remember this. I do need to pay attention to the lines on the road because I'm driving at the same time. But so mm -hmm. your brain kind of automatically takes in all of these senses and filters out what's important, what's not important, and what your body needs to actively respond to. So a child with sensory processing disorder has a hard time in that part of the brain where it's telling them what to do with this. It'll take in that sound and it'll spend a lot more time than someone who has a neurotypical brain who doesn't have sensory processing disorder. It'll spend a lot more time thinking and spending time, oh, what is that sound? Do I need to listen to it? Nope, it's not important. Oh, I don't know what that is. I'm scared. I'm going to go into fight or flight mode to protect my body. So that's when you have a child who is sensitive to to sound. So they might hear a sound in the background and then automatically their brain is like, I don't know what that is. It's dangerous. I'm going to cry, scream, kick, run away. Mm -hmm. You could have a child who is sensitive to sight, to any of the senses really, and kind of have that over-responsiveness 
to sensory input in comparison to someone who is neurotypical. And Mm -hmm. then the last thing I'll say is that there's several profiles when it comes to sensory processing disorder. So I just specifically shared an example of sensory sensitivity because that is the profile that I work with closely. That's what uh, my daughter has. But you can also have a child who has a, if I talked, if I talk about sensory profiles, I often talk to them as sizes of cups. So a sensory sensitive child has a small sensory cup. It gets overwhelmed and overflowed pretty easily. There's sensory seekers or sensory cravers sometimes. They have large sensory cups and they just cannot get enough. So their brain is taking in the information, but it's not enough for them. So they seek more. So these are kids who are running, like constantly rocking, fidgeting, chewing on things, and they just have a really hard time feeling like their brain has enough of the information that it that it wants and seeks from the environment. So you can have different profiles, but the idea is that your brain works a little differently, has to work a little harder for things that should be more automatic for it. Oh, such a help. Oh my gosh. Such a helpful like um, description here. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I, for my, um, I can share like for my, my husband, um, he has a difficult time when there's a lot of sounds happening, um, like tuning out certain sounds. Right. Um, and also sight visually. So like if we go anywhere, he's, it's it's like his brain is taking in so much and it's so overwhelming and it's harder for him to tune out certain things and focus on certain things. Um, and then when you take that, you know, I'm a family therapist, so I take the individual and then I, I am deeply curious about putting them in the context of the relationships and systems around them. Right. And so just that, right. Just that challenge that he struggles with absolutely impacts his relationships. Right. Like Mm -hmm. if I am trying to talk to him and we're at dinner and it seems like he's all over the place, like looking at everything around him and like Mm -hmm. is, you know, I'm talking to him. He's like, he's noticing the conversations happening next to us. And it's just like, hello, I'm right here, you know, and that can be difficult um, for the person that he's trying, that's trying to connect with him, but also for him, because it's like, okay, I want to focus on you and this, but like my brain is not letting me (laughs) like, this is very challenging, right. To focus um, on this one thing. And just, and then there's, you know, Gosh, I mean, I, um, I get touched out very easily and my son definitely is a sensory seeker. And so he'll crawl into bed with us and he wants to be right there next to you. Right. Um, and he also loves crashing. So he'll love to like crash into us. Um, and he's always chewing. So like he'll grab my hair and he'll start chewing on my hair. And as somebody who, um, gets touched out, right? <laughs> Especially having a baby and, mm-hmm. you know, you're breastfeeding. You've got another kid that just is wanting to lean on you and touch all the time, which like even saying it, it's like, gosh, like sounds really sweet. Right. And there are moments where it is, and I love cuddling with him, but it's also difficult. And as a parent, right. To, to be like, okay, this is something that he's seeking out. And it's actually, I mean, before I didn't understand why, um, but now I understand it more, but it still is hard. And, and there can be behavioral stuff that comes Mm -hmm. with the sensory sensitivity, right? Can you Mm -hmm. speak a little bit to that? Um, What are some of the behavioral components here of, you know, so maybe someone's listening and, you know, they might be wondering, Hey, I wonder if my kid, has sensory sensitivities, right? And this is this is more than just you know typical toddler behavior, right? Um, or typical school age child behavior, like where kids have feelings, right? And like yeah. those feelings are going to express and they're going to spill over. And this is all, like so much of that is developmentally appropriate, still hard, but developmentally appropriate. Mm-hmm. Like how do we how do we know when when actually goes beyond that. Like this, your kid is actually struggling internally, right. Mm. Um, with something like sensory sensitivity and it's spilling out, um, behaviorally. What, what does this look like? Yes. So I love this question. I love when the topic of behavior comes up because I think often 
parents and teachers, non-OTs, people want to find out if what a child is doing, they will often ask, is this sensory or is this behavior? And my first Mm -hmm. thing, my first Mm -hmm. reframing is always that sensory is behavior, right? Our sensory responses to everything is a behavior. Hitting is a behavior. Crying is a behavior. So I think parents and teachers Mm -hmm. want to know, is this behavior being driven? Is the hitting being driven by a sensory trigger or is this behavior happening because my child is tired or my child has a hard time communicating that they are angry, some other reason. But the hitting, let's take that as an example because it's such a big example. The hitting is the behavior. It's a behavior. So we need to understand what sensory triggers look like for a behavior. And this is when you really need to start observing. And I always um, I always recommend parents and teachers write down when their child has that behavior and ta- and think about what happened, not just right before, but maybe the day of. Because the thing about sensory processing, especially a sensory sensitive child who has a small sensory cup, it can be like a culmination of events throughout their day that just end in a meltdown or a hitting behavior at the end of the day. It's not always the right before. It's not always that one trigger that happens right before. So let's talk about that. So If we have a child who is sensory sensitive to sound, and sound is very, they are sensitive to loud sounds, but they might also be sensitive to just competing sounds, like what your husband experiences. And this is what I experience. I get very irritable. My heart races when I hear like a mix of music and talking, or if there's too many people talking at once, I get very uh, like flustered and have a hard time filtering that out. So a young child who has, who's auditorily sensitive, and they maybe hear a sound that they either um, weren't expecting, like maybe a fire drill sound, or even something that is not that loud, like maybe someone has one of those really loud sneezes. You know, those people who sneeze like <laughs> like they're barking, like really loud, terrifying <laughs> sneezes that are startling. I saw a meme the other day, and it was like, <laughs> It's like the the more the lot the more years you're married, the louder your husband sneezes. I'm like, that's the truth. I like I look at him. I'm like, babe, you didn't always sneeze this loud. And he's like, why? Because it just get louder and louder. Oh, but yes, please. It's so true. Yes, but so let's take that as an example. Uh, so a sensory sensitive child is startled or has this big spike in their stress level in their brain from hearing this sound. And so their brain turns on their fight or flight mode because they are now they are in protective mode because that's how they're, that's how sensory processing disordered brain works. And so for them, the fight mode is hitting. They might hit the next person, the person right next to them. They might throw something and they really did not mean it. Now for most older kids, who have the ability to speak or to use or have communication will say that they didn't mean to do it or they don't know why they hit because it's literally an automatic reaction. Other kids, if it was something else, they might say, oh, I hit him because he took the toy from me. They have a reason because he made me this. It's not, that's not always like the, the, the way to really quote diagnose whether something is sensory driven or not, but that's always one thing that I look at now. Um, There are other kids who go around hitting other people or throwing things. And it's also a sensory thing because they like the feeling of that contact with other people and they don't know how to say it. A lot of these kids, like we as adults are still decoding these behaviors. How can we expect a child who's living it, who doesn't understand that their brain works differently than other kids? How can we get, how can we expect them to be able to express their needs more appropriately. They're just doing what their body is telling them to do when it's sensory driven. So one like actual real world experience was this little boy that was sensory sensitive to touch. He didn't like imposed touch. So anyone that like touched him on his shoulder, he didn't like hugs. He didn't like any, anything being touched. We, I was observing him. He was referred to me for hitting in the classroom, hitting and scratching I observed him in his classroom and he was in a group of like three or four other kids sitting in a circle playing with marbles or like some, a bunch of rolling balls. And one of the other kids, marbles rolled under his legs and the kid went to grab for it and just 
touched his leg barely. And my client, the one who I was observing, reached out and scratched that boy's face. And so Mm -hmm. I saw it happen. And I know this child because I had been working with him in the clinic. And that was his trigger. His sensory trigger was being touched. But on the outside, the behavior looks like he's being aggressive and he's not wanting to share the toy or he's not able to play in a social group. But that's how easily a behavior, a sensory behavior, if you don't peel back the layers and you don't get more curious and look at really, really the child, that's how it can easily be labeled as the bad kid in class or the aggressive Mm -hmm. kid in class or the cry baby who's always crying. There's so many ways to to misunderstand kids with sensory challenges because especially when they're just quote just sensory challenges I say that lightly but meaning when there's no other umbrella diagnosis that goes with it most people mm-hmm. who don't understand it will think it's something like they're doing it for for control or manipulation or they're a bad kid and it's so easy to misunderstand mm-hmm. these kids Oh my gosh, absolutely. And I can, and, and like we were saying earlier, um, those labels, right, like can carry a lot of weight and can impact the way that people around them interact with them, treat them. It can be almost become this like self fulfilling prophecy mm-hmm. um, because of this label of a difficult child, right? Um, yep. Or a sensitive baby or mm-hmm. gosh, yeah aggressive. Um, and, and for me, the diagnosis of sensory processing disorder, while I had fear around that label as well, it was also incredibly empowering to, as I said, to understand my child more intimately, and then to be able to share this information with their teachers so that, they could understand them too. And so that accommodations could be made. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. and it was, it was, it was a really, really, I'm so grateful to that preschool teacher who picked up on something so early. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I I guess I'm I'm curious to hear from you, like the process for the parents listening and they're like, okay, maybe they're either they're maybe they're thinking, gosh, this was me, you know, and I want to talk about that in a little bit, um, being a sensory sensitive parent, but also just the hardships and the the challenges that can come with parenting a child, with sensory sensitivity. Um, but if someone's listening right now and they're, they're wondering, maybe this is something that my child is struggling with. Like what would be that, what would be the first step? Would, would you say, talk to the pediatrician? Would it be, um, do they be making an offer referrals? Would you have them go straight to a, an OT in their area? Where can they find them? Like, what does that kind of look like just for the listeners? Yeah. So there's a couple different routes that you can take. So in the United States, you have the early intervention option. So if your child is between the ages of zero and three, and you have any concerns about their develop their development, even sensory, you can go, you can literally Google early intervention and then like your county or your state, and it'll give you a list of um, centers near you and they can give you an evaluation and give you services for free. That's funded, I think through the state. Um, You have to have a certain like low level of functioning, so to speak, for your child to qualify for services, but that can at least get you seeing a professional and talking out some of the things you're seeing. And even if they can't provide you with direct support, hopefully they can give you resources of things to try near you um, or other ways to help you um, around the house. So that's if you're zero to three and you're in the United States. I know other countries have other forms of this. I just can't really speak to that. Um, Mm -hmm. The other thing is, yes, you can go to your pediatrician. And I say this in the kindest way to just be ready to advocate because the thing about sensory processing disorder is right now it does not technically exist in the DSM, which I don't love. And we don't love the DSM because it's it's really hard to fit kids in these boxes. Like you said, it's just checking a bunch of boxes. And if maybe it impacted a child for one week instead of two weeks, then they don't qualify for a diagnosis. Like it's really hard, but for insurance purposes, sensory processing disorder is not a standalone diagnosis in the diagnostic manual. Uh, It's part of 
ADHD and anxiety and autism, which is why a lot of parents think if their child has sensory processing disorder, it must mean they have one of those other things. The thing is, I think, and I couldn't tell you why it's not in the current DSM. Maybe you know more than I do since you're also in the field, but there's research to back it up. They do have neurological research that showed that studied the brains of children who didn't have autism or ADHD or any other diagnosis, but they were, but their parents were reporting some sensory challenges, and they did find different uh, their their white matter looked different in their brain than other mm. neurotypical children and other children with different diagnoses. So there is evidence, and there's a lot more than that that's coming up. So. This doesn't mean it doesn't exist in isolation. It just means that some medical professions and depending who you speak to might say that if your child doesn't have autism or doesn't have ADHD, then they don't think, then they can't have SPD. So that's the hardest Mm -hmm. part when going to a pediatrician. I hear from so many parents who go straight to their pediatrician and their pediatrician says, well, your son doesn't have autism, so he does, it, it must just be your parenting style or to try Oof. all these other <laughs> all these other different routes of trying to like better better the parenting skills, so to speak. Some of them are very blunt about that, some of them skirt around it. But if so I say go speak to your pediatrician, of course, bring up your concerns. I would Go prepared with a list of your concerns that you have, how long you've noticed those things, and how it really, really impacts your daily life. So not just my two-year-old is having tantrums, right? Because the pediatrician and what most people will say is two-year-olds have tantrums. I would say, and I had to do this. I had to go three times to my pediatrician to get a referral, believe it or not. I had to say, my daughter is having 90-minute or more meltdowns three or more times a day. And she's headbanging. She's biting her finger. I'm having to cancel clients at work. I'm having to not attend certain things. Mm-hmm. Like th- and it's happened for for months now. I need this is yeah. not oh, this is not a typical tantrum. These are very very distressed meltdowns. So you have to be very very. You can even take video. Okay. Then the next step, or you could you might be able to self refer. You could go through a developmental pediatrician, which is a little different than a pediatrician. They have more specific knowledge about behavioral disorders, and they can uh, kind of triage you um, in in offering um, social work, play therapy, OT, PT, speech. They can kind of send you along the route that way. And going through your pediatrician or a developmental pediatrician will help you get more of the covered services through insurance. But if you don't have insurance or you don't think your insurance will cover it, you can also go directly to an OT in a private clinic. I worked in private clinics where we did not need, but you don't need referral for medical professionals. You just will pay out of pocket for it, which is definitely pricey. But that doesn't mean that you can't get access to services to an OT if your insurance doesn't cover it. Yeah. Yeah. We, we went straight to an OT. Um, we're both, both my husband and I work for ourselves, so we don't have best health insurance, unfortunately. So we, we were going to pay out of pocket. Um, and we went directly there, but I've had clients who have, just like you mentioned, um, have received services from the county or have also just gone to a develop, um, a pediatrician or a developmental pediatrician, just like you, um, recommended who, um, has more of that sort of specialization. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. And so would you say, so I love this idea of like bringing like the data, right. Mm-hmm. And so, um, would, I wonder if you could offer some, 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 some pieces that might be helpful data. So you mentioned like the length of the, um, meltdowns, the sort of behaviors around the meltdowns, right. Like you mentioned headbanging and, um, finger biting. Um, and then you mentioned previously like rocking. Um, also, um, I know there's also other sensory potential symptoms, like kids that are just really, um, picky about the clothing that they're wearing. Correct. Like, um, tags and fabric. Um, can, can there also be eating, um, like food, food stuff too? I'm curious if you could just mention a couple of things in different areas. So people can kind of 
collecting that data, you know? Of course. Yes. So what I, that example I shared was specifically about meltdowns. If your child is having lengthy, intense meltdowns, definitely bring that up about the duration and um, like specifically your child's like behaviors during them. And then also don't be afraid to share how that impacts your life. Because, you know, if you're having to cancel work, like it's, it's, it's really impacting the whole family at that point. That kind of shows the gravity of the situation. Um, so for, if we're talking about sensory sensitive kids, yes, you might notice that your child um, can't tolerate um, certain clothing styles. And I'm not just talking about like, oh, these jeans are itchy. It's I can't wear these pants because they have seams in it and they will only wear one or two brands. And it's to the point where it's either impacting their hygiene like I had kids who couldn't wear underwear and they were girls and they were, and they couldn't also wear pants. So that's impacting hygiene or they can only wear the same pair of shoes that has holes in it because they're so particular about the way that it fits. Or they will only wear shorts year round because they don't like the feeling of pants. And then if you live somewhere like Michigan or somewhere where it's really cold and snows, that can become a problem as well. So, so, so mentioning the the thing that's, that you're concerning about and how that's really, how that looks, how that's impacting their ability to function or do things. So picky eating is a huge one. Um, we, uh, I always recommend parents write down the list of foods that your child does eat specific to like the brand or um, so like some kids will only eat dino nuggets. They won't eat chicken nuggets from McDonald's or chicken nuggets from Carl's Jr. They will only eat one specific kind of nugget. That is one uh, food. So we say a child is considered a problem feeder and needs help with, with it from a sensory perspective, help with feeding therapy if they have less than 30 foods. And hmm. that counts. So like I said, if it was chicken nuggets at McDonald's and chicken nuggets at Carl's Jr., those are two foods. So it doesn't just have to be chicken as one food. So it could be a variety. So I would write that down. And then we also um, – talk about the different, if they have any vegetables or fruits and then any proteins and starches. So if you come like prepared with all of that and you write it down and your child has like 10 foods, that's all they'll eat. That is definitely uh, something that will qualify you to get feeding therapy, not from an insurance perspective, but if I was assessing someone and they had only 12 foods, I would take them on as a client, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah um, I know it really yeah, so feeding, clothing, sensitive to sound, and you you might say he really doesn't like when the toilet flushes to the point where he can't flush the toilet or he'll cry and he'll have a meltdown for like 20 minutes after. That's different than just kids who just like, oh, I don't like that sound, cover my ears and move on, right? The, the, right. the intensity and how long it impacts a child's dysregulation is key to showing uh, the need for professional support. So- that kind of covers the sensory sensitive piece. The uh, the seeking part, you can also say, my child has a really hard time sitting still. Uh, they have an unsafe body at times because they keep jumping from really high surfaces and they uh, don't seem to notice that they are getting hurt or they're not able to participate in class, in their preschool class, because they just keep running in circles and they're not being able to form any relationships. So you see how you're kind of taking that behavior, but then you're extrapolating and saying and painting the picture. This is why it's really important for me. This is why we really need to get support. Um, and yeah. then, yeah, you could talk about chewing. You could talk about they keep hitting kids and they don't know why. And they're having a hard time. I think, I think they're maybe really dysregulated by the sound in the classroom um, I think the long, the the more uh, data that you come with that, and even show videos or pictures if you can, um, mm -hmm. is is easiest. the The parents have the hardest time in the young years because I think so often it gets written off as toddlers because they could either be like super yeah. active or they just cry all the time. And then it's really, and especially if they're toddlers who aren't in like a daycare or preschool setting, because once there's that preschool or other caregiver or teacher who can see it and can also say, yep, I see this happening. And in comparison mm -hmm. to the other kids, this child is avoiding that play or this child is is um, having a disruption in their day. So the, the early mm -hmm. years are often missed and early intervention is really so important. So I highly recommend mm -hmm. looking at that um, closer if you're concerned about it. 
That's so helpful. And you know, it's so, it's so interesting. Like even right now when you were just saying, um, you know, the teacher notices and, and says, you know, in comparison, like there was like this little part of me that still lives there that I have to kind of like bring out and like, you know, give her a hug. This is this part of me that still feels in this, those moments, like, Oh, like my kid is being compared and like mm-hmm. my kids being different and just worries and feels like some shame and guilt around it. And, um, and I, I share that, 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 that just happened for me just because in case anyone's listening and they find themselves like worrying and having those similar feelings. And that I know that for me, um, that part of me, when I really get to, when I really pull her out and I, I sit her across from me, like I, I, I genuinely like can picture what this part of me looks like. And, um, she just wants, she just wants her kids to be happy mm-hmm. and to be loved and to be safe. And it, when I, when I really notice that I have so much more tenderness and compassion towards that part of me, but it also helps me get back in the driver's seat so that I can keep moving forward towards getting my kids support, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I I also, I also feel like it's important if parents are listening and they're feeling that as well to remember that when, when we're looking at offering a child support or, or wondering, or trying to identify if they have sensory processing disorder or if they need any sort of support, it really does depend on the context and the environment. And when I say comparison, I mean, in the fact that they are having a hard time functioning in the environment that they are in in relation to the kids that are there and in that environment. So my example, this always comes back to the school because that's what occupies most of our children's time these days is because say you have a sensory seeker, but they're in a classroom that's sort of Montessori based. It could be Montessori based, but something that offers a lot of up and down movement, moving around to different centers. A child who is going to move around a lot might look and be able to function more appropriately in that setting. And it might not be something that needs to be addressed because they're still able to participate because they're getting that movement. Now, if that same child was in more of a standard school setting where it's like structured, sit at this desk, do worksheets, um, which might work for some students, but may not work for a seeker. That's when the teacher might say, well, all these other kids are sitting at their desk and this is the only kid who's standing up and moving around. That's when, that's when the OT might say, okay, well, so let's support him in that classroom. Let's give him tools. Let's offer him movement breaks so that he can still participate it just might look a little different. Or the child who is sensory sensitive might do much better in a very small classroom size versus in a like 30 child, 30 student classroom where they're going to have more fight or flight reactions to the sounds and the, and the smells. But if that same child was in a smaller classroom, you might not see these things as much because they're able to function because it's much easier for them to regulate. So across, that's why OTs always look at the context and the culture and the environment, not just like what's going on in the child, because it can look different in different environments and whether, and depending on the environment and the context will help us decide if they need support or if they're able to kind of make it and, and function on their own in that environment. As a family therapist, you are speaking my language, my love language of context and the importance of understanding the environment and the relational dynamics. You are speaking my language, Laura. Mm-hmm. So, okay, mm-hmm. this is so, so helpful. Um, how, how common is it, have you seen for a sensory sensitive or um, a child who has sensory processing disorder to have actually a parent who is also sensory sensitive or has some of these sensory um, struggles as well. Is this pretty common? I would say it's pretty common. I don't have any, I haven't r- looked at the research to see the actual statistics of, in terms of like the biological factor of it. But if you think about it from just an environmental standpoint and like a um, what it's like raising a child, if you have sensory sensitivities, you might kind of limit the activities that you offer them. Like, so for example, um, tactile sensitive, if you don't like messy play as a mom, not just because of the mess that it creates of like, you have to clean the house, but if you don't like touching shaving cream and Play-Doh and sand. If you have your own sensory sensitivities, what are the chances that you're going to offer that often for your own child? And then the less kind of exposure that they have, then there might be a chance that it might be hard for that child to develop 
the appropriate responses to it. Again, I just want to be very clear here, though, that this is not like a causal relationship. Like if you don't let them play with sand, they're going to have sensory sensitivities. Yeah. It can You can just kind of see how it would make sense and how there might be a link there. So that might some, be something to think about. Um, but I've also worked with parents who are um, – I have a lot of parents in my parent membership who are sensory sensitive, like touched out, I feel like is just a general type for moms, like something that we all feel (laughs) and we're, but we lean towards the more sensitive part of too many sounds, too many touches, but then they have children who have some sensory seeking tendencies too. So it's not always quite a direct correlation of like, I'm sensitive, they will be sensitive. Yeah. Okay. So here's where kind of, I know that like nothing is ever going to be like, people aren't going to listen to this episode and like leave with all of the tips, tools, because a big part of it is getting the, you know, really nuanced support for your child. But I'm curious if you have any sort of suggestions or, or any tips for um, parents with a child that has sensory challenges because it can be really difficult and it can be really hard. And even if it's just like on the parent side of things, like how to care for themselves, right. While, while navigating this, um, and as they take steps to get supports, right. Cause I know supports can be a big part of it. Um, but yeah, just any suggestions that you have, um, for all the, for the parents who are listening. So my biggest suggestion for the parents listening, especially if you're not even sure what's, if you're kind of starting your journey or this episode is kind of like starting to have you to uh, start thinking about, well, this does kind of sound like my child. My first suggestion would be to think of, to, to think of your own sensory quirks and your sensory preferences. So you can kind of have insight. So what I mean by that is think of things that you really, really dislike and things that you really, really like in terms of what makes your body feel calm, things that you, what makes your body feel energized. So for everyone, that's very different. I am not a workout person. I don't like movement. I don't like a lot of heavy work. It does not make me feel like the calmest or energized. I know there are other people who do. That's Those are your sensory preferences. We don't have sensory processing disorder because we like those things. I know the things that make me feel calm and regulated are dark spaces and quiet. Like I can't even have music on. I need, I take dark showers with the lights off. I just like really resetting. So I, so I would encourage parents to think, maybe even write down or just reflect. What are some things that that reset your body. This doesn't have to be a whole self-care act, just the actual raw sensory inputs or lack of sensory inputs, if you're like me, that reset your body. And then once you have that and that makes sense, first of all, that could kind of start building your own toolbox. We all need sensory toolbox to feel regulated because you know you can't really help a child regulate if you're not regulated. So once you have your own toolbox, then that allows you to start looking through that lens at your child and helping categorize and say, hey, he really does like to move a lot in the morning. His body is needing a lot more movement in that morning. What can I do to help support that? And then you can start kind of searching different ways, some fun sensory activities to work it throughout your day. But you'll need to kind of notice if your child is old enough, you could sit down and work with them. You can ask them. But at this beginning stage, it's going to be a lot of observation and just start to categorize it and pattern it out. They really like that quiet time in the afternoon. And if it's too loud, I know that he's going to have a meltdown. Or right around this time, he really starts to chew on my hair a lot. He's really needing that oral input. So I'm going to make sure he has that water bottle with the chew straw next to it. But you can start searching all the specific supports you need once you have a closer idea of what it is that regulates their body. But the best place to start is to start looking at yourself because that will give you a lot more insight and empathy for it. Oh, I love that that's where you started. I think that's such a powerful parenting tool. Like I noticed that like, when I found myself getting like frustrated with like, say my nine-year-old daughter about something. And then I give myself a moment to pause and I really get back into that sort of like mind of the nine-year-old girl. Cause I was a nine-year-old girl at one point, right? Like, mm-hmm. and the things that I was curious about and the things that I would have done, <laughs> the things that I was, mm-hmm. that were important to me, it just brings so much empathy and I, I, I approach her 
in such a more empathic way with connection as my goal, you know? Um, and it ends up being just so much more easy to connect because she's going to feel that I'm, I'm, I want to know more about her experience and I can relate to the experience in some way, you know? And so I love that that's where you started. Yeah. And the great thing about it. Oh, sorry. No, no, you please go. One last thing. The great thing about it is that we can, we can think about like your example is you can relate because you remember what it was like to be nine and all of the things that were important to you. But the thing that's cool about sensory processing is we are all living it now. We all have preferences and things that we like, so we can connect to it today. And you can use that as a starting off point to talk to your child about their sensory needs. Hey, I noticed you really like chewing. My favorite thing to do is I like to twirl my hair when I'm trying to think of stuff. Isn't that funny? But that's my thing. You like to chew. So you can, like, there's stuff that you can relate to your child with now today because sensory processing and sensory tools are something that everybody uses and accesses, even parents, even adults, even teachers. That's such a great point. Okay, Laura, where can people find you and the work that you're putting out there and all of your offerings? Yes. So I am hanging out way too much on Instagram, but I'm there like <laughs> all the time. You can find me at um, on Instagram at the OT butterfly. I um, share lots of tips on how to support your child through sensory processing challenges at home there. I also detail a lot of my story with my daughter who has sensory sensitivities, as I mentioned. And if you are listening and you do know your child has sensory sensitivities and you want help on supporting them at home, I have a free masterclass that's always running. And you can go to the otbutterfly.com slash masterclass to get a free ticket and watch and find some ways to support them starting today. Oh, thank you so much. I will be sure to include links to all of that in the show notes for the listeners. Laura, thank you so much for taking the time today. I'm so glad that we got a chance to sit and chat and talk about this. I can feel your passion and this is something I'm also very personally passionate about as well. So just very grateful to you and sharing all the information that you did today. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. It was, it was great to chat. You've been listening to Holding Space Podcast. I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you did, you might want to hit that subscribe button to be the first to hear when new episodes air. Looking for more support? I teamed up with a board-certified OBJN to bring you two e-courses for expecting and postpartum parents. Head over to the show notes to learn more. Thank you so much for inviting me into part of your day today. I'm so grateful, and I hope you have a beautiful, wonderful rest of your day.